In any case, why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into Acts, the book of Acts once again, chapter 4. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we open your word again this morning that we will be reminded that we are desperately needy people and that you are, are an amazingly gracious and giving God. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us as we consider this text, that we will see it in its context, of course, historically, but also that we will see ourselves in this text, and that we will see uh, the lessons, that we will understand the lessons you are teaching, and that we will be drawn close to you as a result. So glorify yourself in our, in our time of study, and um, help us to understand and worship. In your name I pray, amen. So we are in Acts chapter 4. We're going to continue the storyline of uh, Peter and and uh, John, who were drugged before the Sanhedrin. And um, then, as we saw last week, um, they defended themselves before them. As uh, If you remember, uh, the Sanhedrin did not have any wiggle room, if I may put it that way. They had no wiggle room with regard to um, punishing, holding on to, uh, in any way, form, or fashion, the, um, these two people, these two apostles, disciples, apostles, um, because everyone knew that this previously lame guy got healed. Everyone in Jerusalem knew that, and it, it was very clearly throughout Jerusalem connected from what Peter and John did to Jesus, and that it was Jesus and his resurrection that was the story, not this cool miracle that happened. And as we know, 3,000 people... Uh, came to faith in Christ through it. Um, we bring our, that brings us to chapter 4, verse 23, that's going to build off of the storyline. It's a very important building, shifting of story, because they're no longer in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, but we're going to be looking at verse 23 through 31 this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up at 32 and following. So chapter 4, starting at verse 23, let me read it with you, and then we're going to walk our way through the text. When they were, re- when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's our text this morning. So you get it in just the reading that the text starts out with when they were released. So we know that they get released from imprisonment. They were in prison overnight, and then they were released because, again, there's nothing that the Sanhedrin could do against them. What I'd like to do this morning, as we walk our way through these verses, I want to give you a number of observations uh, that are very important to see in the text. Um, And each one of these observations, obviously because the Word of God, are very purposeful in the the context of the storyline. So I'm not just going to point them out as observations, but I'm going to camp on them and explain them to you and show you how they all fit in. Does that make sense? But they're very, very important. uh, Because this shift from Peter and John, this shift, from Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin, along with the previously lame guy, to all these new believers is dramatic and very crucial. And not just the storyline in this story, but the storyline in the entire book, as it builds off of, of course, Acts 1 and 2. So you'll notice, first of all, in verse 23, they were released. Notice what it says in verse 23. When they were released, that is, Peter and John and the previously lame guy, we can only assume because the previously lame guy doesn't really get mentioned again in the storyline. But we can only assume that the previously lame guy does what? Goes with them. I think it's a good assumption. I think it's the only assumption that makes sense in light of everything else that's happened. When they were released, notice what they did. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
Now, verse 23 is really essential because it establishes the trajectory for the entire section. A couple of observations I want to give to you out of verse 23. I want you to notice something first. Observation number one. And I'm probably going to forget which order it is eventually. I'll start with one. Probably around two or three, I'll forget them all. And, not, and I won't give numbers to them anymore. It's up to you to give numbers to them. But observation number one is very intriguing. Peter and John have been in prison. They've been arrested. They were drugged in front of the most powerful Jewish leaders of the day. The ones who were instrumental in Jesus being crucified. It's crucial you remember that. That means they have power. And they have connections with the local Roman government. They can get things done. If you oppose them, you're in trouble. And what do Peter and John, and most likely the previously lame guy, what do they do immediately? They go to their friends. Correct? As you see in verse 23, they go to their friends. Who do you think their friends are? All the new believers. All these new believers are going to see their friends. Now that's a really important statement in light of the storyline. It's what I just said about the Sanhedrin and the Romans. What is the natural thing to do when you get called in front of a body of people who actually have power to destroy you, and then they release you, your natural tendency is to do what? Hide. Is that not the natural tendency? Especially when you know what they just did to your leader. 50 days, maybe a little bit more than that earlier. Your natural tendency is to hide. We can add other words to it, right? Your natural tendency is to cower. Your natural tendency is to do the Acts 1 thing. Remember Acts 1? They were in fear, right? They were afraid. That's a natural thing to do. Before John, but for these two people, John and, and, and Peter, something had changed. Right? What had changed for Peter and John? The Holy Spirit had come upon them with power. It was promised in Acts 1.8. And in Acts 2, beginning of Acts 2, it happened, right? The Holy Spirit came upon them with power. Everything changes then, as evidenced by Peter's message in Acts chapter 2, as evidenced by his proclamation, his message in chapter 3, as evidenced by his defense, that's a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated defense in chapter 4. Everything had changed for Peter. And so when he's released, and when John's released, the first thing they do is what? They go hang out with other believers, right? Even though they're all young believers, they go hang out with the other believers. And notice what it says at the end of verse 23. What do they do? Observation number two, they report what the chief priests and elders had said to them. What did the chief priests and elders say to them? Forget the questions for a second. What did they say? Don't talk anymore about Jesus. Right? It's exactly what they said to him. Don't talk anymore about Jesus. Of course, their response, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged, verse 20, or you must judge, but verse 20, for we cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. We talked about that last week. They can't help it, is the idea. They can't help but talk about Jesus. So as soon as they're released, the first thing they do is they go back to, to the, these young believers and tell them, report to them what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, it doesn't say the exact words that at all that they told them, but you know they told them the whole story, but the whole story is centered on Christ. It certainly isn't centered on what, where we would go, right? Because if we did this, and if we did have the, the boldness to go back to our fellow believers, what we would tend to do is what? As we talk to them. Maybe say, look out, they're, they're watching out for us, they're trying to capture us. What else? Yes, talk about what we've endured, what we've, been, what we, what we've mistreated, we're going to complain, we're going to gripe, we're going to get aggravated, we're going to look for people to soothe us and care for us because of all the difficulties we've gone through. Does that sound familiar? 
or maybe overstate. Yes. What was that? And look for pity. Isn't that common? Aren't these, aren't these things all common? They really are. But what did Peter and John do? They go back and they proclaim everything that, that, the, that the Sanhedrin, if I may sum it up, declared to them, said to them. Now it's interesting, in the context it becomes really clear, as Rusty said, what they end up talking about is Christ. They're not griping, they're not complaining, they're not, they're not moaning and groaning, they're not talking about how unfair it is, they're not talking about, about how they can wiggle through this, how they can survive, they're not talking about any of that. The reason why I say what they're talking about is Christ is because, firstly, as we saw in verse 20, they cannot but talk about Christ, about Jesus, right? That's the first side of it. That's the one side. On the other side, we see the entirety of the congregation of this new church, this young believer group, plus the, uh, the, the disciples that are there, is they turn to talking about Christ. Take a peek at it. Verse 24, and when they heard it, that is the rest of the congregation, when they heard it, heard what? Everything that the disciples, Peter and John, told them, when they heard about everything that happened, if I may sum it all up, they complain. When they hear everything that happened, they gripe. When they hear everything that happened, they fear. When they... When they, when they hear what happened, they start organizing to protect each other. Is that what's happening? No, all the common things we talked about, none of that shows up, does it? Not one of those things show up. What's the first thing that happens? Look at it, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. What does that mean? It means they are, well, not yet, but they will. But this is more rejoicing, right? Yes, we're going to get to that in a few seconds as well. They're re but firstly, they're rejoicing, aren't they? They're praising. They're talking about the attributes and character of God. That's their turn, right? That's their immediate turn. Notice it. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. This is not one person, but th this is a cacophony of sounds, of voices. We don't know how many were there. We just know that this is the gathering of the young church. And together, this young church is breaking out in worship. To sum it all up, they're breaking out in worship. They break it out together to God and say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, we're going to stop right there. So the second thing that we need to observe well, in this verse, now it's like the third or fourth, whatever it is, you can figure it out. So they break out in praise, acknowledging who God is, right? We're going to talk about that in just a second, right? And then we see that they, they turn to the Old Testament, right? We haven't got into it yet, but they turn to the Old Testament and start talking about the Old Testament, don't they? We're going to hold that thought. I just want to point those out to you. Now let's go back to 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, and this brings up what Tom said, the first thing they turned to with regard to the discussion about God is what? Acknowledging His sovereignty. Absolutely right. They, they begin immediately to talk doctrine with one another. Aren't they? In their praise to God, in their acknowledging God, the first thing they turn to is the sovereignty of God. When I say the sovereignty of God, when they say the sovereignty of God, they're talking about His authority. But they're not just talking about His authority. They're talking about His active authority. What they're talking about is, when they say uh, here in verse 24, Sovereign Lord. They're going, and you notice it, because right away they go all the way back to the beginning, don't they? You see that? Who made the heavens and the earth. So they're immediately going back to the very beginning. Sovereign Lord, who is in effect, he's saying, sovereign over all things, in authority over all things, active authority over all things, and more importantly than just active authority, it's active authority applied. Because his active authority in being sovereign is he is the declarer, is the idea. 
He's the declarer of what will take place. That's, that's this young church's declaration. Sovereign God. The one who, who speaks and it happens. That's why it's connected to creation. Did he speak in creation? When he spoke, did it happen? When he said, let light be separated from darkness, did it happen? Yes. When he said, let the water and the land separate itself from one another, did it happen? Yes. When he spoke animals into existence, did they come into existence? When he spoke the stars into existence, did they come into existence? When he spoke the fish and the birds and then man into existence, did they happen? Could I just throw this as an aside? This is a total aside. I'm absolutely convinced that at its core, evolution, this is just an aside. I'm going to say it and get off of it. I'm convinced at its, at its core, evolution is an attack on the sovereignty of God. It's an absolute attack on the sovereignty of God. Because he doesn't speak, it just happens. Does that make sense? God is not sovereign. He's not in control. He's not the declaring God. He's not the God who speaks and things happen. He may or may not exist, but he doesn't do it. No, he declared and it came. In, what was not into, in being came into being. And that's the point of a sovereign God. So they call out to the sovereign God who, who plans, and his plans always come to fruition. Always, 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 never, ever thwarted. Because if anything ever thwarted God's sovereignty, what's sovereign? The thing that, thwart, that, thwarted, that thwarted, not God. Absolutely. So when, I can't speak. When, when God spoke into existence, it happened. That's why it goes to sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Before we go beyond verse 24, though, into 25, I want to point out one other observation. Again, we're just going to see a lot of observations here that are really essential. So he establishes, or they establish the sovereignty of God, but at the same time, I still go back to the previous verse, 23 and 24, especially 23. Why wouldn't they be afraid? Why wouldn't they gripe and complain and, and moan and groan and mumble and scheme and hide? And cower. Why wouldn't they do it? Where you establish one reason why? Because the Holy Spirit's come upon them with, with power, right? But coming out of the Holy Spirit being on them with power is this most essential thing of verse 25. The place they immediately turn to. Why would they not cower in fear? Why would they not be afraid? Why would they not grumble and complain and gripe and all the rest? Because God alone is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. Why fear if God is sovereign? Why grumble and complain and gripe and be aggravated and, and be bitter about how the, the, uh, this, these, these people, the Sanhedrin, mistreated me if God is sovereign? See, if God is sovereign, then for Peter and John, would they not see the Sanhedrin as being tools in God's toolbox? Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? They would understand if God is sovereign, then the only thing we can, the only way we can view the Sanhedrin is tools that God is using for His glory in some way. Does that make sense? Just like Pharaoh in Romans 9 and, of course, in the Old Testament. If God is sovereign, then Sanhedrin, tool. God is using a tool for His own ends. And his own ends are his glory. And we find out later in that Paul writes, not only is it for his glory, but also Romans 8.28, it's for our, what? Good. It's for his glory and our good as his children. So for Peter and John, they look at this abuse that they, that they received and the threats they received, which are just precursors, right? What's going to come? Isn't it? I mean, this is about the most mild they'll ever get from the leaders. One night in jail and warnings. It's about the, the, the least they're ever going to get from here on out. 
every step of the way, it's just going to be ratcheted up. And not just for Peter and John, but for Silas and Paul and Stephen and Timothy and James and all of them, right? For every one of them. But see, what informs them, as we've talked about previously, what informs Peter and John, of course, it's the Spirit at work in them with power, what informs them is doctrine, who God is. If God is who He declares Himself to be, He's the Creator of all things. That means He's the Creator of the Sanhedrin. Correct? So, I can trust God in this. I can depend on God in this. What, it, so for Peter and John and the rest of this young congregation, in other words, for me to gripe, for me to complain, for me to moan and groan, for me to glorify myself, which is, I think, one of the things you said, for me to go and cower, is all, any one of those and many others is purely and simply to be just like the Sanhedrin, denying the sovereign God. Purely and simply. It's a striking contrast, is it not? That brings us down to verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then the congregation, whether it's in unison, because certainly they're Jews for the most part, if not completely, and, and they're used to singing the, from the Old Testament Psalter, so they may very well have sung this, this passage. They quote from Psalm chapter 2 whether it's singing or quoting or whatever, in the midst of their worship, who through the mouth of, your, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now it's interesting that they quote from Psalm chapter 2. We're not going to go over there and camp on Psalm 2, uh, chapter 2 and read the whole thing, but... Psalm chapter 2 is a very interesting messianic psalm. Because the psalm talks about Jesus, but it talks about both sides of Jesus. What I mean by that is, it talks about His first coming, and believe it or not, it talks about His second coming. What I mean by that, in Psalm chapter 2, it references His first coming and how all the people, for the most part, are going to despise and reject and hate Him. And they're going to rage against Him. Did they not do that? Jesus Christ, according to John 1, came unto His own, and His own what? They rejected Him. They received Him not. How badly did they reject Him? They killed Him. They raged against Him. Crucify Him, they hollered. Didn't they? That's what verse, verse 25 and 26 here is referencing. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now you look at it and you say, it's the Gentiles though, Steve. Yeah, because for God, who are the real Gentiles? Yes, the real Gentiles are anybody who isn't His. And we are in the New Testament era now. And Peter's, or Paul's going to make that really clear in, in Romans chapter 2 and 3. That Gentiles are nothing more than lost people. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. <clears throat> the entirety of the people came against Him and of course He was crucified. But in, it's interesting, they don't quote it here, but in, in these people had to be thinking about, about the rest of the chapter as well because the rest of the chapter don't just talk about Jesus being rejected and being, being abused and being raged against, but it talks about Him also judging and how the judgment will be complete. So He will come and He will bring war. And that war will be victorious. But it goes on in verse 27. And by the way, verse 25, the half, second half of 25 and 26 is referencing what Peter and John are doing, and the rest of the congregation is they're making it specifically applied to who? The Sanhedrin. Right? They're specifically applying the Psalm chapter 2 to the Sanhedrin. 
as well as, uh, firstly, not to the Sanhedrin, but firstly, it's to, we're going to find out to Herod and to uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate. But then it's going to apply also to, to the Sanhedrin and all those who reject Jesus. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There you see it in verse 27 and 28. You see several things. Again, several observations. What are the observations? Well, what the congregation is declaring is that verse, the end of verse 25 and 26, as I just said, are referencing Herod and Pontius Pilate and their activity against Jesus when they condemned Him to die on the cross. They raged against Him and they plotted in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed Jesus Christ. And what, what the congregation is saying, in this city where we are, because they're in Jerusalem, in this city where we are, just a short time ago, Psalm chapter 2 was, part of it anyway, was fulfilled with Pontius Pilate and Herod as they came against Jesus. Notice verse 28, though, to do whatever. Now this is where the curveball starts, doesn't it? Remember where we started? Verse, uh, verse 24, sovereign God. Look at verse 28. To do, that is Pontius Pilate and Herod, to do whatever, not whatever they chose to do against Jesus, right? You see it? Not whatever they chose to do, but instead to do whatever, what? Your hand, that is God's hand, and his what? His plan had what? Predestined to take place. God had ordained, had predestined, had planned that Christ was going to come to this planet and be born of a virgin and live the perfect life that only a perfect God-man could do. And that and catch what, what, what the congregation and Peter and John are saying. And, very important we get this, in his plan, it was specific enough that he identified in his plan that Herod and Pontius Pilate sovereignly by God's hand and plan would crucify Jesus. In other words, who were Pontius Pilate and Herod? They were tools. Tools in God's toolbox. For what purpose? To accomplish his plan to bring his plan to fruition. It's absolutely essential we see this. This is not just Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Romans by extension, the Roman soldiers by extension, who crucified Jesus. It wasn't just the, the Jews who were crying, crucify him, give us Barabbas, that crucified Jesus. Ultimately, and completely, those are all second causes, if I'm used the, the theological construct that I like so well. Those were all second causes. The first cause is who? It's God. This is not left up to chance. This isn't God in heaven saying, well, we're going to send Jesus to the earth, and hopefully, they'll act, hopefully what will happen is that they'll kill him, that he won't just die a natural death. Hopefully, my hope is that they'll kill him on the cross because that's what we talked about in the Old Testament as we prophesied, so hopefully they'll actually do it. We don't want to have to send him back again. Right? As, that, that, that's, not, that's nowhere in, G, in God's thinking. That's nowhere in the Father's thinking. That's nowhere, that's nowhere in the Godhead's thinking. It was foreordained. It was predestined from the, for the foundation of the world just like God spoke the creation, heaven, earth, birds of the air, animals of, of, of the earth, and everything into existence. In the same way, he spoke into existence the very crucifixion of, of Jesus. And not just the very crucifixion of Jesus, but all the intricacies of it. Every little intricacy. 
And it all came to pass just as he declared. Can I just say this real quickly? Can I just pause this for a second? That's the God who loves you. That's the God who cares. That's the God who watches over you. That's the God who has brought us here today. That's the God who is active today in our lives and in our world. Are the, can I just pause for just a second? Are the nations today raging against Jesus? No question. There's no question. Just this week in Canada, the Canadian federal government just declared that Christian values are antithetical to the Roman, or I'm sorry, to the Roman, to the Canadian government. They're antithetical. They, they, they are not compa compatible. Just this week. I'm sorry? Yeah, really. <laughs> just this week. Um, and then there's some out in California this week. There's some rulings that they made that are absolutely antithetical to Christianity, that's trying to shut down Christianity. It's everywhere, friends. It is. It's everywhere. Should we gripe and complain? Should we mumble and groan? Should we cower in fear? Where do these people go immediately? They went right to the sovereignty of God. Their recognition right from the get-go is that if you live in Canada, Trudeau is a tool in God's toolbox for his glory and for the Christian's good. If you live in California, the California government is in place as God's toolbox for his glory and the people's good. If you live in, in America, I mean, our, our, there's a lot in, in, in our government that is antithetical to Christianity. Not as bad in, in, in our federal government as it is a lot of other places. It most likely will be because the scriptures tell us that things are going to go from worse to worse, right? From bad to worse, right? Although our major concern on that passage is in the church. But no matter how we slice it, the starting point for these people in this young church, and I love the fact that we're talking about new believers even, right? New believers. And their starting point is what? God's sovereignty. That's really, how else can we explain Paul and Silas, we mentioned it before, singing in prison after being beaten and locked up? Yes, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, no, <clears throat> no question. But they're doctrinally informed of the truth of who God is. Because what does the Holy Spirit use? He uses Scripture. Doesn't he? And these new believers, they don't know much, do they? Oh, they know a lot about the Old Testament, but mo almost everything they know about the Old Testament is right or wrong. It's wrong. And yet, by the Spirit, he's opening their eyes to see the, the essential things for them. In this case, the essential thing is what? God is sovereign. He's in charge. So again, starting in verse 27, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow, would I have loved to have been in this service, by the way. <laughs> would it not have been awesome? The whole congregation, there's no preaching going on here, is there? If there's any preaching, it's the whole congregation preaching, isn't it? Man, they're belting it out. They're reminding one another, and boy, there's another observation. Is this not exactly what they're doing? They're reminding one another of the sovereignty of God. All this that brought us our Redeemer was by the sovereign, predestined plan of God. Which brings us to verse 29. Love to camp out longer. We've got to keep moving. And now... Lord, everything shifts. Verse 29 is a massive shift. And now, Lord, the shift is from Jesus and Pontius Pilate and Herod to John and 
Peter, I'm sorry, John, yeah, John and Peter and the Sanhedrin. And now, Lord, we were talking about your sovereign plan in the past. Now we're talking your sovereign plan in the present. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. So acknowledge their threats. Obviously, what they're doing is they're, they're not now denying the sovereignty of God. They're just saying, God, don't forget. Well, of course, he's not going to forget, right? Because, first of all, he doesn't forget his people. They're just acknowledging what God says already about himself. He doesn't forget. And they're acknowledging that what he's promised not to do, that he doesn't do. They're, just, they're asking. It's turning into a prayer, right? And they're saying, God, don't forget what you promised not to forget. Correct? You're going to say something, Jim? Okay. So, and now, Lord, look upon their threats, that is the Sanhedrin's threats, and in their prayer, they now make their first or second request. Their first request is remember, right? But their second request is not what we would ever expect the request to be, because it just about never shows up in requests. The request that comes out so often when we've gone through difficulty, our boss has mistreated us, maybe because we're a Christian, let's play the game. We've been a Christian, we're a good Christian, and maybe we, we, we share the gospel with somebody in the midst of work, and our boss has come down hard on us and told us, don't preach the gospel. So we go to church and say, oh, I may lose my job. My boss is upset, I preach the gospel, pray that I don't, what? Lose my job. And that prayer is coming from Trust in God's sovereignty, or is it coming from fear? Fear, isn't it? Every time it's coming from fear. Because I believe a sovereign God, then I know if God takes away my, if, if, if God in his sovereign plan takes away my job, because ultimately God's first cause, then what's God going to do? He's either going to give me another, or he's going to provide for me, or he's got a different plan for me to suffer for his glory, right? See, he doesn't promise jobs, does he? He just promises he's going to glorify himself through us if we're his children. Correct? So I, I can't trust he's going to give me a job because he hasn't promised that. But I can trust that he's going to glorify himself in his sovereign plan. Let's get back into what kind of prayers are prayers of faith or not that we've talked about in the past. So he turns, or they turn now to their request Request number one, again, is look upon their threats. Remember, don't forget, you promised not to fulfill your promise. And grant to your servants, what? To continue to what? Speak with boldness or confidence. Wow. What a prayer that is, huh? What a if, if I may just work off this, we all understand, for example, we all understand that, that sickness in the world is why. Why is sickness in the world? Because of sin. Because sin entered into the world, right? Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Because the fall, enter, stage left, death. And sickness ultimately leads to death. Okay, so sickness is in the world because of sin. All types of sickness. Whatever it is, it's all because of sin. And it all leads to, ultimately, death. We're all going to die unless Christ returns. None of us get out of this thing alive unless Christ returns. Correct? Physically, that is. If I acknowledge that truth, which is doctrine, by the way, and acknowledge God's sovereignty, would I find, just a question, would I find my primary praying being about God healing my sickness or would my primary praying be about something else? Would not my primary praying be about glorifying Him and give me boldness so that this sickness, rather than even though it's the result of sin in the world, that it results in, first cause, your glory. Doesn't that make a little bit more sense in this context? Doesn't it, is, is, is it, in our mind, in our way of thinking, it's kind of radical, isn't it? Right? I mean, that's, that's outside of our thinking, isn't it? But that's not outside this young church's thinking. Because they're thinking doctrinally. They're thinking about, with regard to the truth, what has God said? What has God declared? What is God all about? What is He after? 
What is he accomplishing? I don't know what his predestined plan is unless he's revealed it, right? And he hasn't revealed much about sickness except that ultimately sickness is a result of sin in the world and sin results in death. So this sickness is working death in me, right? But if you think about it from this perspective, in Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, it's, all this stuff is working out. It wasn't sickness. It was abuse and everything else he was going through. But all this is working out death in me, but life in you, Corinthian church, and I'm okay with that. That's basically what he says. It's a radical difference. See, we think life is good if only we get past our sickness. Life is great if only our boss treats us nice. Life is great as long as the government officials make the right decisions. Life is great as long as our neighbors get along with us. Life is great as long as I don't get cut off in, in traffic, or as long as I don't get any traffic. Life is great as long as I have a good-paying job and it's reliable, and I know I, it'll, I'll keep it. Then life is great. For these people, that wasn't the case, was it? For these people, life is great. Why? Because God is sovereign. End of discussion. Isn't that it? For these people. Life is amazing. Why? Because God is sovereign. And He saved me. He rescued me from darkness and hell and condemnation that, that, that Psalm chapter 2 continues with. Judgment. He rescued me from all that. And so, for this young church, along with Peter and John, who walked with Jesus for three plus years, and the previously lame guy, who was just introduced to Christ as well, for all of them, their only response to the threat, and to Peter and John and the previously lame guy's imprisonment, is what? Twofold, remember, as you promised, and number two, give us boldness. Could I just add one statement in there? As you promised. What is, what is this young church referencing when they pray in verse 29, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What are they referencing? They're referencing... Acts chapter 1 and 2. What did he say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, what? Will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. They're also referencing the Great Commission at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. All power and all authority have been given unto me. Sound like sovereignty? Does that sound like sovereignty? Does to me. It's kingdom language. We've talked about it before. As you're going, therefore, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And by the way, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the, end of the world, end of the age. Do you sense that that's what the early church here is referencing? Do you hear the boldness in Matthew 28? Do you hear the boldness in Acts 1 and 2? You hear it in the, in the declaration. You observe it in Acts chapter 2, don't you? It's fleshed out in Acts chapter 2. It's fleshed out in Acts chapter 3. It's fleshed out in the beginning of Acts chapter 4. Is there any timidity in Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Any timidity at all? How about Acts chapter 3 when he preaches again? Any timidity? How about Acts chapter 4 when he gives his defense? Any timidity? How about Acts chapter 1? Timidity? Yeah, there was some. But how about really when Jesus is arrested? arrested? Any, any, uh, any timidity with, with Peter? Oh my goodness, it's dripping everywhere, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like a timidity flood. They're saturated in timidity. 
Ah, but after the Holy Spirit comes with power, they're saturated with power. They're saturated with boldness. Why? Because Christ promised it to the apostles. And he promised it to all those who'd come after. And so they, who'd all, what, what do these people pray? They pray what's important. In light of who God is, doctrinally, who God is, they pray, God, remember, you promised to, now remember. And then they pray, give us boldness. As you promised. What beautiful prayers of faith. What amazing prayers of faith. Nothing else shows up on the radar screen of their prayer, does it? There's some more things that are going to be said, but nothing else shows up on the radar screen. It doesn't show up, God, give us boldness as long as we don't pay, have to pay a price. There's no give us boldness and make sure that everybody receives us nicely. Give us boldness and make sure there's no opposition. Do you hear any of that? No, they weren't. They were praying for boldness for all of them. Right? Again, because God promised it. But there's none of this, give us boldness and. There's none of that at all. Just give us boldness. And the point when they say give us boldness is because they know what's coming. Because Jesus himself said, at least Peter and John know this, because Jesus himself said they hate me, they're going to hate you. They know what's coming. There's no question in their mind they know what's coming. They don't know the specifics, but they know what's coming. And in light of those truths, it's give us boldness. Give us boldness to do what? To fight for politics? Give us boldness to fight for our job? Give us boldness to fight for our property? We're going to find out later in chapter 4. That's not the chapter. Yeah, chapter 4 is not the case. Give us boldness to fight for our comfort and our ease? No. Give us boldness to proclaim Christ. Pure and simply. And then it goes on into verse 30. As he continue, they continue this prayer, uh, uh, help us to, con to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then the next word in verse 30 in the ESV is while a lot of people uh, I, that I've read are trying to say that verse 30 is, is part of the request. It's not part of the request. The request is boldness, remembrance and boldness. Verse 30 is just an acknowledgement of what God, again, promised He's going to do. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Because God, Jesus had said there's, that early on that, that the apostles are going to be involved in these signs and wonders. I'll present to you this statement on healing, however, is, it, I think is the most interesting out of all of them. While you stretch out your hand to heal is probably referring to both, not just one thing, but both the physical healings that the apostles early on will do, but it's also the ultimate healing, because the physical healing is to signify that the true healing is real. Remember what Jesus said? Which is harder to do? Say your sins are forgiven, or what? Rise, take out your bed, and walk. Obviously the harder one is to, to say is what? To say, no, to actually do, yes, but to say is what? Take up your bed and walk, because all the evidence is going to be there right away if it was effective or not, right? If he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and the guy just lays there, and, and he's just as lame as he was before, it's, it, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable. To say your sins are forgiven you, there's, there's no immediate evidence, right? In, in the people's minds. I would argue in verse 30 when he says, you, while you stretch out your hand to heal, is talking both about the physical, which are just pointing to the reality of the healing spiritually. That's the point of the physical. It just points to the reality of the healing spiritually. He could do this. He's doing this. And so, when he says, while you stretch out your hand to heal, we understand that the greatest healing that God can do is to take people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and do what? 
make them alive spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2. So they're, 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 the, 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 these people are praying, God, make us bold, continue to make us bold while you do your things that you're going to do. Right? The physical healing, the spiritual healing, the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Then verse 31, and while they had prayed, it's interesting what comes next, right? While they had prayed, while they, um, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was what? Was shaken. It's talking about a physical activity. This is real. The place that they're gathered, wherever this place was, it shook. Why do you think the shaking, what, what do you think the point of the shaking is? Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, I would argue, Tom, you're absolutely correct. It's the physical demonstration of the spiritual that is taking place. Okay? But I would, I would argue when you read further into the later st- uh, stories and scriptures, you will find that people, actually unsaved people, are arguing that what the apostles are doing are shaking the very foundations of their societies. Sound familiar? Just like the shaking here. It's shaking physical here, shaking spiritually there. It's, it's, it's transforming things. It's shaking. It's evidencing itself is the idea. The spirit present physically, in this case, is, is, is evidencing what the spirit is about to do spiritually. Make sense? And although there probably isn't as much of the the physical thing going on, but the spiritual movement of the Spirit is ongoing. That's that's the point. The physical is just evidencing the spiritual that's going on. Not that the physical needs to be there, but the spiritual is ongoing as is promised. He didn't promise that he'd always shake things, in other words. But he did promise that he's always going to be doing what? Before Christ comes, moving powerfully, shaking foundations, foundations of what? People's lives, communities, churches. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Interesting, God fulfilled his promise, didn't he? The place shook, and then it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean they weren't filled before. But this is, this is not, if I use the term, this is not... Um, I'm, I'm going to use the, uh, one, of the, one of the commentaries I use, uh, Matthew Henry's commentary. If you know about Matthew Henry, he's like late, uh, late I think uh, mid-1800s, mid early 1800s, something like that. I'm not sure. What's that? 1800s, yeah. Um, Here's how he described it. The initial filling of the Holy Spirit takes place at the bar. Now what he means by that is not where alcohol is served. He's talking about at the bar as in judicially. Okay? The initial filling of the Holy Spirit takes place at the bar in front of the judge. But the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit takes place, his term, is in the pulpit. What he means by that, it, it is the first one is at the bar, judicially, in front of the judge. You're declared guiltless, right? Because he became sin for you. And now, as people who are saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, he comes upon us with, chapter 1, verse 8, he will come upon you with power, and that is the what what Matthew Henry called the pulpit power, and he's not being literal pulpit for the preacher. He's talking about we're all called to proclaim. Correct? We all have our pulpits. Was 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 Matthew Henry's perspective? We all have our pulpits. Whether your pulpit is at work, in your neighborhood, in your place of recreation, um, or whatever it may be, we all have our pulpits. We have many, many, many pulpits. And what happened for these people after they'd been praying, doctrinally meditating and encouraging each other, 
And then praying according to the truth is the place where they were staying was shaken. And after it was shaken, they were filled with pulpit power. Make sense? They were filled with supernatural pulpit power. Why would, they be do it? Why would that happen to them? Because God promised it. And that's who God is. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. They prayed that God would keep His promise just a couple verses earlier. And then God kept His promise. And what happened? It wasn't they said, well, we better get out there and start preaching. What happened was their tongues were unloosed. Or untied. They were loosened. Their tongues were untied. And the Spirit began to speak through their mouth. That's what began to happen. Does that make sense? I wonder, just some thoughts. I've just given a lot of observations. Applicationally, I wonder. I just wonder if perhaps our lack of proclamation, our tongue-tiedness, our lack of looseness on the tongue is twofold. I wonder if it's twofold in that we are not doctrinally centered, truth centered. We're not people consumed with doctrine. We're not people consumed with knowing the God who is, as He declared Himself. We're not focused on that. And we're not focused on that. We are by default going to be focused on, if I may be blunt, other doctrines. And I don't mean instead of being focused on the doctrine of God, we're going to focus on the doctrine of end things. I mean it more viciously than that. If we're not focused on, on the doctrines of God, we're going to be focused on the doctrines of this world. We are. Every time, if our, if our heart is not after the doctrines of God, our heart will be after the doctrines of this world. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, be after it today while it's still today, so that you don't get a cold or a hard heart. What is, by definition, a cold or hard heart? It's a heart that's hot after the doctrines of this world, but cold to the doctrines of God. So number one, I wonder if, if our tongue-tiedness, our lack of boldness, is because, firstly, we're not hot after the doctrines of God. Of all the things the scriptures tell us about himself and his plan and, and, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the doctrines of sin and the doctrines of the church and the doctrines of, of heaven, the doctrine of Satan as God has revealed it, the demons, the doctrine of end things, and all the rest that God has explained to us in the scriptures. We're not hot after that. And number two, as a result of that. Number two, because we're praying about all sorts of other things. We're after all sorts of other things. And therefore, it's, and it's evidenced by praying about all those other things, if we pray at all. We're praying about those other things. These people were informed of the doctrines of God. And the doctrines of God informed them of the things of this world. It gave them clarity. It was the lens that they viewed the world from as new believers even. And it caused them to pray for the only thing that mattered. Not safety and security. None of that. Or any number of other things but to pray for boldness. I wonder what would happen in our church if doctrinally speaking we found ourselves praying this way. 
I wonder what would happen in our midst. I wonder what would happen in any church if we started praying that way. I wonder if some foundations would be starting to be shaken. Oh, I'm not talking physically. I wonder. If we could draw anything out of this text, it is these people, they knew Jesus. They understood why Jesus came. They understood what he accomplished, even though it may very well be in small, tiny little tidbits of ways because they're new believers. They got what God sent Jesus for. They understood who the Father was. They understood what he was about, what he was after. And their love for him was set aflame by the doctrines. Can you see that here? Their hearts were set aflame by the doctrines. And all they could pray for is God give us boldness. Untie our tongues with loosened tongues employ. Should have sung that song this morning. So can I just ask us to consider two things? Number one, what do you know about God? I mean, really, what do you know about God? About what He's revealed. And what he's after, what is, what, what's important to him? What's his heartbeat? And then from there, turn to prayer. Now I would submit to you that all of our prayers, I think, would radically change. And I think we'd be shocked at what the Spirit will do in our lives. I really do. I think we would be shocked at what the Spirit will do. And before you know, we're going to start looking at people asking for prayer for Aunt Melba's big toe, and we're going to look at them like they had three heads. We're going to be like, what? What? I just, I just want to pray for, for, for Aunt Melba that she'll have boldness. If he chooses to heal her, that's great too. That's a bonus. But man, I just want to see... Her have boldness. Or if she's not saved, I just want to see you have boldness to speak to your Aunt Melba. What Jesus. But could I just tell you something? And we're going to close with this in my message. Thinking that way. Praying that way. Comes with a cost. It does. There's a cost. And the cost is high. It's high. <laughs> if you know the scriptures at all, you know it's high. The pain is high. The cost is high. But yet at the same time, what does Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because although life in this world is a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as a traveler, is hard. It's hard. This is just a moment in time. And life with Christ is glorious. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, help us. <clears throat> It is so easy to be distracted by all the shiny things of this world. It's so easy to get distracted by the cares of the world. It's so easy to get distracted by the riches of the world. It's so easy to get distracted by the fame of the world and all the rest. But the only reason why we get distracted that way is because we don't know you. Because if we knew, if we knew you, we would be like Moses. And we would say the riches of Christ are far greater than all the wealth of Egypt. 
because we find we will find ourselves looking forward to the reward of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray you will open our hearts, soften our hearts, and open our hearts so that we will understand you as you've revealed yourself, that we will fellowship with you and learn of you and taste and see that you're good. Teach us the truth. And then, Lord, I pray for our church, pray for me and the rest of the people of our church that you will give us a a holy boldness. Protect us from being deceived by thinking, well, Lord, give us boldness so that our church will grow. Or any other reason. I pray, Lord, in knowing you that we will be drawn to pray for boldness so that you will be glorified. So that your light will shine brightly in the midst of this darkness. Change our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's sing, shall we? And I'm going to play with the